Welcome to Katusa First. We are God's family. We're building God's kingdom, and we're doing it with joyful hearts. We don't need another world full of sad-faced saints. Uh, as Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So when we gather together, we are joyful because God has allowed us to be here this morning. He has allowed us to worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even though there are always things that we can complain about, there are always negative things in the world, this morning we're going to choose joy. Not our joy, but the joy of the Lord. Amen? Um, my name is Caleb, and I'm the teaching pastor here. And what we like to do is we work our way through a book of the Bible at a time. We do that so we can't skip the hard stuff. If you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts, the second chapter. It's cheating. Acts, second chapter. We'll begin reading in verse 24 here in just a second, but let me just let you know where we left off. Uh, we are hearing the very first gospel sermon preached. A lot of weird things just happened in Acts 2, where tongues of fire fell on people's head. There was uh, loud wind, and people began to speak in a language uh, that was maybe not their native language. And people from all over had come that spoke different languages, and they were hearing the gospel in their own language for the very first time. And it was confusing to some. Some people thought they were drunk. Uh, if you went and never heard a foreign language before and somebody started doing it, you might be like, what's going on with this person? Well, they were having the same reaction. So Peter begins by helping them see the world through the lens of the Old Testament. He's reminding them things, of, uh, things they had already been taught but had forgotten. So he would just take them back. Guys, don't you know what the Bible says? And he would remind them. They go, oh, so this is like that. And we talked about tongues, which uh, we live in a time. It really wasn't any kind of expression of what we see in today's churches that are considered tongues. You don't really see that through most of church history. From this day on up until like the late 1800s, there's none of the kind of charismatic tongues that we see in churches today. In fact, I, I did a study on this years ago of when did this kind of tongues uh, start where people would begin to speak in a language that nobody knew, right? Where it was, they would call it a heavenly language or angelic language. And I was doing some research and it came back uh, kind of during the Great Awakening when all different religions, there was a huge explosion of Christianity in the U.S. And whenever Christianity is growing, you always have spiritual parasites, right? Things that latch onto it to kind of gain momentum with the movement. Even with the revival that has been happening in the U.S. right now on college campuses, uh, started at Asbury and has been spreading to other college campuses. I've seen uh, so-called prophets and apostles who have gotten prophecy wrong many times, now using the hashtag Asbury Revival in their post, talking about, I went to Asbury and I gained the fire and I'm bringing it to your town. It's only $150 to attend, right? And so these are parasites that are attaching to it. When I was studying, it seemed during this time not only did Mormonism begin, uh, but also the Jehovah's Witness movement began. This is a time of great religious growth within true Christendom, and those were kind of the parasites that attached to it. There was also this new phenomenon where it was in a paper that there was a group of believers who believed that they could speak 
in languages they had never studied. There was a small Bible study going on, and the preacher had left his uh, denomination to start his own group, and they were doing Bible study. They read Acts second chapter, and they said, you know what? We want to be missionaries throughout the world, so we're going to pray until God gives us this gift. And so they were there for days and days and days. And then finally, one lady, she said, I can speak Chinese now. And she started to say words that sounded as though they were Chinese. She says, I can even write it. And so she was writing it down and news spread of this phenomenon. And all of a sudden, someone says, well, I can speak Spanish now. And they raised money to send these people to go off on missionary journeys. But as word kind of spread and the things that she had written down saying that it was Chinese... Uh, turned out it was nothing. And as they go to be missionaries, they get there and they think they can speak a language and they can't. But that was kind of the first time that we see what has become modern day tongues. But if we look at the Bible, not through the lens of current events, but through the Old Testament, we see that this is the reversal of the Tower of Babel, where the languages are separated and now they're united. So last week was Paul, or excuse me, Peter, explaining that this has precedent in the Old Testament. And he's going to continue on to do that a little bit more. So Acts chapter 2, verse 24. If you got it, would you say, I got it? He said, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make the full of gladness. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So that's him quoting the Old Testament, and then he does what any good preacher does, is he explains how, why this verse in the Old Testament is relevant for today. Here's what he says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set uh, one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out his, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we open up your word, as we study these things that you have for us today, you would move in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would lead us to repentance, that you would in, in strengthen our ability to obey you every single day. All God's people said... So I, th there's a little bit more I want to read, but let me just kind of break down and pause about the beauty of hindsight, the beauty of Christian hindsight. Uh, the Bible is full of wisdom, but it's wisdom we tend to ignore, and that's usually the way most wisdom is. When you're growing up, don't your parents teach you all the things that you should know for the most part? 
Don't play in the street. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't hit your brother. Don't do these things. And then as you get older, do your homework so that your grades are good because you need good grades if you want to have a good career. You're going to want to have a good career if you want to take good care of your family financially. And they give you all this of advice, and what do you do with it? Throw it away. <laughs> like, sounds nice, Mom and Dad. Thanks, but I don't need to know anything from you. That's the way wisdom is often treated. God has given you a book full of all of the wisdom that you could ever need, and we just kind of like, yeah, yeah, just ignore it. And so there's a verse that I've always liked. It's Jeremiah 6.16. It says, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. The prophet Jeremiah says, hey, look, look at how God has orchestrated things to always work and see these ancient paths. They're good for your soul. Walk in those ways. No, no, I don't want to. <laughs> right? and it's crazy, but this is how we live life. And so what Peter is doing in Acts 2, he's going through the Old Testament and he says, guys, you have heard that this would happen. And so he's giving them hindsight to look back and go, don't you know this is the way it was supposed to be? Now he quotes Psalm 16. And a lot of people thought this was about David. And the point that he makes in his sermon is, how could it be about David? David's tomb is still with us today. He didn't, like, he died so it can't be about David. This is about Jesus, who you did not let him stay in Hades, the place of the dead, that you did not allow his body to decay, but in fact raised him from the dead. Some of you are new to church, and some of you haven't been in a really long time. Maybe you made the mistake that many of us make, that you confuse religion with God, and you walk away from both, right? My sermon has that effect on a lot of people. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. So since I, let me repeat that again, because it might have been good. I don't know. Um, some of you are new to church. Some of you haven't been in a long time. Some of you made the same mistake that I made when I was younger. I confused God with religion, and I walked away from both. Some of you have been hurt by church, so you're skeptical of all of these God talk, God things, God promises, and you're just not sure where any of this leads to. But the Christian life is full of beautiful hindsight. We doubt the promises of God at first. Whenever you hear the gospel, a lot of times that sounds too good to be true, so you doubt it. And then as you mature in your faith, you do what's called testing the waters. Maybe you're just starting your prayer life. Lord, I don't know if you actually need help anybody, but I could use some help if you could help me, right? You're just testing the waters, but you're skeptical. But then all of a sudden, God actually does show up in your life, and it strengthens your faith, and then you start that cycle all over again. Well, you help me with this, but I don't know if you'll help me with that. This is, as I look back, I find myself in a better place than I was when I started, and it's simply because I've learned to be obedient to the things that God had already said. I had this wisdom all along. 
I was raised in a Christian home with parents who taught me, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't get drunk, don't do all these things. And what did I do? I did all that. I lied, I cheated, I stole, I got drunk. I did all of the things because that's what the world said would be good. So I had forgotten the ancient wisdom. And now as I look back on my life, you have what Christianity can give you is the wonderful hindsight that God was right all along. So when he's quoting this Psalms is to remind them, guys, God has been right this entire time. It's full of beautiful hindsight. In fact, the Bible says a lot about how to have a healthy family, doesn't it? Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Children, obey your parents, for this is good. It's the first command with a promise that it would be well with your soul. It gives us a lot on how we should treat each other, about gender, about uh, it's bad to have fatherless homes, undisciplined kids. We live in a time of confusion now in all these things. And the world says it's okay to have this, it's okay to have gender confusion, it's okay to have all of these different things, and it's basically taken the, the ancient past that we see in Jeremiah and it's thrown it away like we do with all other wisdom and said it's no good. But statistically speaking, the families that produce the healthiest, most well-rounded, happy kids are ones that come from homes with a mother and a father who love God, teach them not just spiritual disciplines, but physical discipline as well. So if you look at the statistics, the Bible has been right all along on how to raise up a healthy, strong, godly, loving family and the world gets it wrong every single time. And as we encourage people to look back with hindsight that, hey, maybe God has been right this entire time. But there's not only just the wonderful hindsight of righteousness, there is also the shame of realized rejection. As you look back and you go, man, God was right, and he's given you all these new gifts, you also look back on your life and go, I can't believe it took me so long to figure that out. The shame of realized rejection. And that's about what we're going to see here next. If you got your Bibles open still, verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the people that are standing there were the people that knew had heard the ministry of Jesus, and some of them might have even been in the crowd when they said, give us Barabbas, kill Jesus. And so it's very personal. He's like, look, all of these things, God was actually right. You killed the Messiah. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brother, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off, and everyone whom the Lord our God calls himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. When I was not a believer, 
I had piled up a long list of people that I had hurt, wounded, betrayed, lied to. And I had destroyed my life and some of the lives of people around me. And then you've heard me tell my testimony about when I got saved, just waiting tables at a restaurant and somebody comes up and says, God's not mad at you, why are you mad at him? And for whatever reason, I had built up a wall for every religious argument, but there was no brick to stop God's grace. His grace overpowered anything that I had. And so at the same moment, I had this great excitement that there's a God who loves me. And so I look back in hindsight and go, oh, all my sins have been paid for. And that was wonderful. But at the same time, I was cut to the heart because I realized I had killed Christ. So it's weird in Christianity, you have both things at play. I... Uh, <clears throat> There have been times in my life where I had, let me tell it this way. One of the greatest things uh, my dad did was show me tough grace. See, I had been caught in trouble before by the law. And uh, I would just use, well, my dad's a police chaplain. My dad was the head of the police chaplain in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And a police chaplain is just a, a volunteer policeman who has a cross on his badge over here and goes and helps people in their time of needs. And then one day, I had gotten arrested in our neighborhood. I hadn't made it very far. And I was sitting in the back of a police car. And I said, well, my dad's a police chaplain, and I just live just down the road. And so they said, okay, well, if he's a police chaplain, they have a lot of respect for chaplains. Like, we'll call your dad. So my dad at 3 a.m. comes just a block down the house, and uh, I see him talking with the police officer. And my dad, I could read the words of his lips, says, take him. And here I thought that my dad was going to get me out of trouble. Instead, he was telling the police officer, no, take him. And as we drove by, my dad's looking at his youngest son in the back of a police car handcuffed. I just mouthed the words, I hate you. Clear enough that he could see. What I didn't realize is that my dad was showing me one of the most difficult acts of love that he had ever shown. He was allowing me to suffer the consequences of my actions, praying that finally that might get a hold of his son. See, we think God's grace only looks like when they get you out of trouble. But sometimes God's love and grace is when he allows you to suffer the consequence of your actions because it leads to a greater kind of love. God allowed Christ to be crucified. And here, Peter is telling this group, you did this. You did this. And there are consequences. Can you imagine if he just told them, guys, you did this, and now you're all going to pay? Because what are they thinking? They just committed spiritual treason. They committed, they killed the king. And they are terrified of what could happen. It says they're cut to the core and they go to the apostles. Well, what do we do now? What are we supposed to do? Our sin is so big. 
We, we saw him do miracles and we still killed him? What am I supposed to do? I have no hope left. And Peter says, you're right, you're all doomed. <laughs> Is that what he says? It's, it's insane. I want you to... I want you to understand, my whole point this morning is I want you to understand how crazy it is what he says in response to them being made aware that they are sinners among sinners, that they have crucified their Messiah. Peter's response to when this becomes aware, the light comes on, and his response to them is like, what do we do? This is what he says. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, guys, you know. You now know what you did. You understand the gravity of the situation here. You committed treason against the one true king. But if you repent... The one that you killed is the one who will forgive you. And not only will he forgive your sins, your sins against him, not just your sins against your neighbor. All sins ultimately are sins against God. He says, and he's going to give you a gift too. Well, that's, so wait a minute. You made us aware that we killed the Christ and instead of beheading us here right now, as we rightly deserve, this king, unlike other kings, isn't going to kick us out immediately. He's going to give us another chance. If we just bow the knee to the king and recognize he's not only going to forgive us, he's going to give us something. But what is it he's going to give us? He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a Jewish person, that would be just mind-blowing. Because your family had made trips up to the temple, and only in the Holy of Holies could a high priest go. No normal people were ever allowed there. And if you were a Gentile, but you couldn't even get close. You had to stay in the Gentile court. You couldn't go anywhere near it because you were too unclean. You say, Guys, remember when you killed him, how that veil torn? That veil that was the Holy of Holies that kept the Holy Spirit of God right there? Guys, that veil's torn. The Holy Spirit's living in every believer now. And all of a sudden, they hear this news, and what happens? 3,000 people immediately drop to their knees and get saved that moment. Say, of course. I had no idea. This is the beautiful hindsight of Christianity where you look back on your life and you see all the wrong that you've done and you go, I can't believe he loved me anyways. And it comes with this moment of guilt and shame because you realize you killed the king, you committed treason, but instead of judging you, you realize he took the judgment upon himself. This is the first revival. It's the beginning of the church. It's the beginning of a revolution of hope. And the revolution is still active today. 
And it still brings hope to all of those that are far off. There's many people that you know that are saved that you go, I thought they were beyond salvation, right? I can't believe they made it. Repentance leads to hope. Repentance leads to hope, and it's the promise of also a gift to anyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will be saved, and they receive God's gift, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides us. It leads us. It enables us to read his word, and it moves us. It encourages us when we need encouragement, and it convicts us when we need conviction. It grants us access to the creator of all things. Next week, we're going to see how they respond afterwards, because a lot of times we think that hearing this message is the full gospel. Now, this is the message of the gospel, but it continues on. So once you receive this message and how you begin to live it out, the gospel isn't a one-time event. It's an ongoing thing in your life where you are being renewed every day, and what Christ does in you changes the very environment that you live in. It changes how you treat people. It changes how you see money. It changes how you worry about the future. It changes how you feel about the past. The gospel is something that we preach to ourselves every single day. And it has never gotten less powerful. The gospel today is just as powerful as it was then. So I'll end my sermon with the same way that he ended his sermon. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If you have not repented and received the Holy Spirit, and sometimes it's just good to repent. There's nothing wrong with having a heart willing to repent. Of anything that we do during the week that we know just wounds the heart of God, where we grieve him by our actions or attitudes or habits. Sometimes it's a good reminder just to, God, would you just break my heart? I, unfortunately, I was at, over this last week, I attended three funeral services in seven days. And in every single one of them, there is the looking back. Only one of them who was a, a younger man did we look back with a lot of sorrow at choices that were made, at opportunities for repentance that didn't happen. But for the majority of them, everyone looks back, and because they were believers, there was great celebration. It's the beautiful hindsight of Christianity. We can look back at our lives, and even among the mistakes, they were like, but man, they loved the Lord and they loved others. And then it gets to look forward with hope. They say, we know that no matter what's going on right now in our lives, they're at peace, they're with Christ. They're experiencing a level of love that you and I will never quite understand. And even with the one that we had to look back in sorrow, we still had the ability to look forward in hope because in spite of all the mistakes that happened, they still loved the Lord. So it just had me thinking backwards and forwards a lot this week. Looking back at my life, and I don't 
I, I regret the things that I did before I was a believer, but I don't feel shame anymore. Right? I don't feel shame. One, because that wasn't me. That, that's a different person. That guy died. I'm, a, I'm a literally a different person. I've been given a new heart, a new mind, new life. So as enough time had gone by, I can look back still with beautiful hindsight in spite of all the mistakes because I've repented and Christ has made me new. And now I get to look forward to life because of what Christ has done on the cross.